Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. As always, it is a privilege to bring the word, and it is a privilege to bring the word to my brothers and sisters in Christ at my own church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we may be coming this morning with foggy brains because we're tired, or burdened hearts because we're stressed or saddened by grief or there is a, a weightiness to the human condition because of the plight of sin and its ramifications to our hearts and to our bodies so Lord we pray for strength Lord, we pray for the capacity to understand you better and to see you more clearly. So, Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, I pray that you would be with my feeble tongue as I try my best to display your glory in word. Help us now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Don't worry, there will be no math this morning in case some of you are anxious. It will not help your human condition at this point. We are a church who would be quick to resonate with the Westminster Shorter Catechism whenever we ask, what is the chief end of man? We know that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We exist to glorify God. And in today's text, we are going to see a central aspect of glorifying God, and that is to trust in the Lord. God is glorified when his people trust in him. So, please turn to Psalm 115. As you're turning there, please stand in the honor of of reading God's word. So let's hear the inspired words of the psalmist. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, 
but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Psalms are like poems, songs, and if you know me, I love a good poem, which seems weird from a math teacher, but there is a beautiful concision in poetry. They're like little firecrackers of doctrine. They look out at the whole span of the Old Testament, and what you see is this beautiful work where Doctrine and words and themes throughout all of the Old Testament are consolidated in this tiny little dense package that whenever you read it, it is meant to explode on the backdrop of your senses across the backdrop of all the Old Testament so that you see all of the themes in one passage. So, what we are going to do is take this psalm and we are going to look at it under three headings. We're going to look first at trusting in false gods, verses 1 through 8. Then we're going to look at trusting in the faithful God, verses 9 through 11. And then finally we will look at the blessing of God, verses 12 through 18. So trusting in false gods, verses 1 through 8. In the Old Testament, one of the key doctrines that the Israelites were supposed to learn is that Yahweh is different from other gods. This is why, and if you were in youth last Sunday, you heard this, the story of Abraham follows immediately after the story of Babel. The beginning of the nations is set against the beginning of God's people. And this is also one of the reasons why the Exodus is so important in the Old Testament. Yahweh, his display of power, surpassed every effort of the Egyptian gods. 
And so therefore, the surpassing power of God and freeing his people from, at that time, the most powerful nation was on display in the Exodus. Plague after plague after plague, all the way to the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian armies is on display so that we see that God is powerful and that we can trust him. What we see in the establishment of Israel as God's people to their flourishing as a great kingdom is that Yahweh's reputation was consistently being broadcasted. And in our psalm today, the psalmist calls on the Lord's gathered people, just like we are today, to glorify the Lord. And he does so by setting up a contrast. Our God, Yahweh, is different. So we read, not to us, O Lord, all caps, we all know, hopefully, if not, now we do. All caps, L-O-R-D, means Yahweh. It's Israel's God. It's our God. Not to us, Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the stake of your steadfast for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The psalmist begins by calling on the congregation to call for God to be glorified. Now, we throw away or throw around that term to glorify God, but what is actually it mean to glorify God? What does God's glory even mean? So let's do a little exploration. If you turn to Exodus chapter 34, you will see that Moses asks for God to show him his glory. And so whenever the Lord answers, he says, I will make my glory pass by you, okay? But whenever we read the text in Exodus 34, look what happens. So Moses asks, let me see your glory. God says, I will show you my glory. And what happens? The Lord descended, Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there are two things that you can notice from this. What passes by Moses? Well, in one instance, the Lord says, my glory I will cause to pass before you. And then in another instance, right after that, what passes before Moses? The Lord himself. In other words, the Lord's glory is merely, merely, a display of who he is. It's what makes God, God. So another facet of what we see here, of what God's glory is, 
is his steadfast love and faithfulness. So this display of God's glory is highlighted in his covenant love and his trustworthiness, right? His steadfast love and faithfulness. So those are a hallmark of Yahweh's covenant with his people. His glory for the people of God is encapsulated in this understanding of the steadfast love and faithfulness that he has for his people. So what makes God God? For us, what we need to see this morning is that it is his love, his unyielding devotion to keep relationship with his people. That is why the psalmist appeals to the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear it? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The psalmist is calling for God's glory, his, his godness to be on display so that we highlight the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. It's what we should see. It's what we should think of when we think of our God. This is why now the psalmist turns to the nations and their idols. The people of Israel are to appeal to their God to be glorified, displaying his personal covenantal relationship with the nation, or with Israel, and they're supposed to do that against the nations. So, what do we see with the nations and their idols? The taunting of the nations was common. I'm sorry, the, the nation's taunting of Israel was common. Where is their God? Speaking of Israel as God. It's meant to belittle Israel. Israel's invisible God was easy for the nations to mock. When Israel especially was weak and in distress. In fact, it was part of Israel's mission to make known, because God is invisible, Israel's mission was to make known the greatness of God, to display his glory and his power. So if you think of Joshua chapter 4, Joshua leads Israel through the Jordan, and as they go through the Jordan, they pick up stones from the dry riverbed, because that's amazing, and they make it through to the other side, and they set up the stones, and Joshua says in Joshua chapter 4 verse 23, why this is to be done. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. Israel's very existence testified to the power of this invisible God who sits in the heavens. No God could do what Israel's God did. There is no God like our God. He does all that he pleases. Yahweh's relationship with his people is as different as Yahweh is from other gods. 
In fact, when Israel keeps, when, when Israel's God keeps covenant with Israel, showing steadfast love and faithfulness, what do the nations do? What do the gods of the nations do? If Israel does all that, if Israel's God does all that he pleases, what do the idols do? What do the nation's gods do? Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, and eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. What do the gods of the nations do? Nothing. Our God, while he cannot be seen, what does he do? He shows steadfast love and faithfulness to us. Their gods do nothing. What does our God do? All that he pleases. Now, just for a moment, if you think about the God who can do anything that he pleases, what is the thing that you want to highlight? Is it creating everything? Is it oh, parting a Red Sea? Is it the plagues? Is it call, uh, calling manna from heaven to fall for the people of Israel? What is it that the psalmist wants you to see that our powerful God does with all his omnipotence? It is to show his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. The foolishness of idolatry is just on absolute display here. They are incompetent, useless idols who can do nothing. They have no power. They have all these features and can do nothing with them. Isaiah picks up this same theme in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 15. He, Isaiah makes fun of idolatry, saying that an idolater takes a part of a tree and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and, sat and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And then what's he do with the other half of the tree? He makes it into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. The folly of idolatry. Over half, I cook my supper. Over the other half, I say, you'll deliver me. You'll save me. You are my God. And according to this Psalm 115, and in verse 8, what does seeing an idol get you? What does trusting an idol get you in life? Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The reality of idolatry is that idols are lifeless. Idols are useless. 
and those who make them and who trust in them will likewise become lifeless and useless. Theologian G.K. Beale has noted that it is a principle in Scripture that we become like what we behold. Now, this is true in a positive sense, too. For example, what does Paul tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18? And we, all with unveiled face, speaking to believers, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Beholding is becoming. And so for the false gods, we behold them, we become like them. We see this principle, just in case you're curious, we see this principle bear itself out in our own lives, right? Have you ever seen a child dress up like their favorite superhero? Right? There is something in that character that they, they like. There's some attribute that they want to be like, so they dress up like them. They start to emulate. Uh, but this principle also ages with you. If you're not a child, you see this. This is why we have influence, influencers. It's why social media can be so dangerous. What about sports fans? Have you ever worn a jersey of your favorite player? You know, I appreciate some of the things that my teachers taught me in my math classes. And so I emulate them whenever I teach. There's a certain chant that I do in my class, and it involves a leg kick, and I still do it. I'm 40, almost 43, and I still do it, even though I learned it over 20 years ago. It's a thing. We become like what we behold because there's something in that that it captures our vision and we move toward it. We emulate those attributes that we admire. So whenever we behold idols, we become like them. You've heard the phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. This phrase has stuck with us because in some sense it's true. We find something admirable in what we idolize so we imitate what we admire. Therefore, whenever we see an idol and we, we trust in it, what happens? We image forth that idol. We are reflecting that idol's characteristics. Now, if glory is what makes that thing itself, so if God's glory is what makes God God, it's his godness, then an idol's glory is what makes that idol that idol. And so glorifying means that we are calling for others to see what makes that thing that thing. So when we glorify God, we are calling for others to see what makes God God. But in the same sense, whenever we glorify idols, we are calling on others to see what make that idols, the, those idols, idols. So, whenever we see 
an idol and we trust in it, we start to take on the characteristics of that idol. And in fact, what we are doing is we are glorifying that idol. So, glorifying something or someone is to bring or to call attention to that thing's essential characteristics. Oh, glorifying someone is to call for others to see them. So in becoming like that thing, we image forth what makes it that thing. So a quick application, okay? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Exercise caution in what you take in through your eyes, through your ears. This means like what you watch on your TVs, on your phones, on your reels, on your feeds, on your threads, whatever today's media outlet is for you. It's important. These things are not neutral. Parents, oh, parents, monitor what your children watch. Unchecked, unguarded, unfettered access to any media is not good. They will take hold, and before you know it, you will become like what you behold. From its very beginning, Israel was tempted to be like the nations, trusting their idols. And the psalmist is reminding the congregation of the futility of idolatry. If the nation, if the way of the nations is to trust the idols, then what is it that we, as the people of God, are to do? What does the psalmist say we are to do? If we are not to trust in the idols, what should we do? Starting in verse 9, we see that we are to trust in the faithful God. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Three times, three times it is commanded. If you are in my math classes, you will know that if I repeat myself over and over and over again, you probably should make note of what I'm saying. I take that as a good cue, like I can do that as a teacher because my Lord did it. And whenever he wrote the inspired word, right, he repeated himself so I can repeat myself. It's an idea of emphasis here. Oh, Israel, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. Three times. And there are only two imperatives, two commands in this whole psalm. Trust in the Lord, and then at the very end, praise. That's it. Those are your commands. So if you want to take away the big picture of what this sermon is, trust in the Lord, praise the Lord. It's pretty simple. So, set up the contrast like the psalmist does. The nations trust their idols that they can see. Israel is to trust the Lord who is in the heavens. 
The nations trust their idols who can do nothing. Israel is to trust the Lord who does whatever he pleases. The people of Israel are here seen in three categories. You have Israel, you have the house of Aaron, and you have the people who fear the Lord. In other words, we see that the fullness of the people of God, from smallest to greatest, are called to trust. What is the motivation for their trust? He is their help and their shield. He is their defender. If this means that the nations are going to come against them, well, it is as though their idols are coming against God. God is their defender. The nations and their dumb, blind, deaf, senseless, Lame idols pose absolutely no threat to the omnipotent God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Israel is fortified by faith. Now, it's not just any faith, right? The nations have faith. They trust. But what do they trust? It's the object of the faith that's important. The nations trust in impotent idols. It comes down to what you are trusting. And Israel's God is a different God. Trusting in God brings him glory because it draws attention to what makes God God. Trusting our God who sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases, draws attention to the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who Israel is. A bunch of sinners whom God has made covenant with and who will stand with them and for them and against the nations. Therefore, when you entrust yourself to the Lord, you will find the blessing of the Lord. You are trusting in the one who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are trusting in the one who forgives sins. So let us look to the blessing of God. In the Old Covenant, if you wanted to understand how to be blessed by God, you would probably look to the book of Deuteronomy. It was kind of like the the Cliff Notes version of the covenant. Deuteronomy had a special place in the governing of Israel. It is there that the covenant is renewed with Israel before they go into the promised land. You see the Ten Commandments reiterated. You see the blessings of the covenant. You see the curses of the covenant. And if you were to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, you probably see two big headings. So at the end of Deuteronomy, at the close of the covenant, what do you see? Most publishers will put these two headings in your Bible. Blessings for obedience 
curses for disobedience. And I'd say those are two pretty good summaries of what you find there. If you keep covenant and you obey, these blessings will occur. If you disobey and you don't keep covenant, these curses will befall you. So Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 7, what's promised? And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. So rather than the nations overtaking you, the blessings of God will. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. You're going to be blessed all over the place. It's going to overflow no matter where you are, what time of day it is. The blessings of God will be upon you. And then he says, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. So notice how what we read in Psalm 115 about how God is the help and shield of Israel is similar to what you see in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 28 in the middle of the blessings, right? The enemies of God are not going to prevail against the people of God. And then, also, if you look at the blessings of Psalm 115, verses 12 through 15, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heaven and earth. So the psalmist is not going to rewrite all of Deuteronomy 28 and plunk it down here for you. That's the point of the concision and the beauty of a poem is that we just call parts of it into mind in this verse and we bring with it all the baggage of the illusion, that, that reference into our understanding. So notice the blessing of fruitfulness. All of Israel will be blessed and they will grow in numbers. But wait, does the psalmist get something wrong here? What's the cause of the blessing in the psalm? In the psalm, the psalmist says, when you trust in the Lord, you will be blessed. But that's not what Deuteronomy 28 said. Deuteronomy 28 said, if you obey, you'll be blessed. Right? So who, who's right? Is it the psalmist or is it Moses? 
The psalmist is a masterful theologian. He understood the Pentateuch. He understood Deuteronomy, and he understands what is at the root of obedience. He understood that God's design is that trusting is the root and obedience is the fruit. So if you want to obey God, the psalmist says, you got to start with trusting him. So if you want Follow the, the dominoes here. If you want the blessing, what domino has to hit the blessing? Obedience. Well, if you want to obey, what domino has to fall to hit the obedience? You got to trust. Trust is the very first thing. That's where you start. How can you obey what you don't trust? Obedience follows faith. So, what's on display here? The nations see that we are trusting our God whenever we obey his commands. We bring attention to God's faithfulness and his steadfast love when we trust him. God is glorified when his people trust him. And then we move to the end of the psalm where we read, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. The psalmist is showing us the trajectory of redemption God redeemed Israel from slavery to bring them into a place where they could see an Eden-like existence. But the earth he has given to the children of man, we are to be stewards of the earth. We are to see fruitfulness in the land. And finally, we are to fill the earth with the praise of the Lord forever. That is very much an Eden-like existence. And that was what Israel was supposed to see. In trusting the Lord and obeying his commandments, the promised land was supposed to be a place where God dwelt among his people and the glory of the Lord was going to fill the earth by being seen in this people of God. But... Throughout the course of Israel's existence, through the history of the people, they were unable to keep covenant with God due to the hardness of their hearts. Their ability to trust God was hindered. They were stubborn, stiff-necked people. But Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, did what Israel could not do. Standing against Satan, he trusted in every word that came from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. Standing against Satan, he would not worship any idol, Matthew 4, 10. And before his death, he endured the taunts of the world's most powerful nation, 
Let me read it to you. Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before them, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. He was knocked, he was mocked by the most powerful nation. There was not a a nation like Rome. But there was no Jesus like our Jesus. It is through Jesus' faithfulness to the covenant that a new and better covenant was enacted. A new covenant was given. And it is through Jesus' work that we can have right relationship. We can have right covenant with God. So Jesus is the one to whom we look. It is Jesus the one in whom we trust. In Jesus, God took himself and put flesh on him and, put, and provided a way for us to become what we should be. We see the ultimate reality of the fact that those who look to Jesus and trust in him, will one day see something better than Eden. Something better than the promised land. Isn't that what John tells us in 1 John 3, 2? Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, that's Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So as Christians, we look to Jesus, who is the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When we trust in Jesus, we bring glory. We bring glory to God because it draws attention to the one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. However, if you are not trusting in Christ, what awaits? Psalm 115, verse 17, captures it well. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Consider the intense despair, the anguish. Jesus describes it like this. That someone who is under the wrath of God, who is not trusting in Christ, is like one who is cast into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just like the idols to whom you have entrusted yourself, you will be lifeless. You will be useless. 
but it's not too late. The call of the psalmist for God's people to sing forth in praise is also a plea for the nations to turn from their idols. The goal was that the nations would see that their idols were useless and that Israel's God was powerful. I'm telling you, church, there is nothing outside in this world that is going to provide anything that's trustworthy. It is Christ. And it is our trust in Christ that should radiate to the nations. Trust in Him. So, if you're not trusting in Christ, turn away from your lifeless idols and trust in the living God. Oh, Second Baptist, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.